Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honored to have as my special guest, Jean-Marc, best known as lead singer for the successful 80s band, The Box. We'll be talking about music and travels and the business of music, the life of a career entertainer, and we'll get some other insights as well about his multifaceted career. So stick around for a look inside the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for many decades. Thanks for joining me today, Jean-Marc. Thanks, How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm doing fine. Well, great. Well, I, I'm... Uh, I'm really thrilled to have you on. I, I am a fan and, uh, you know, it's neat when I do these interviews, I, I do a course of, you know, go through the catalog and, and do some research and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I just love it. You know, I, I, I sort of listened to a bunch of songs I hadn't heard for a while and I went through the, the catalog of the box and I would recommend to any of my listeners, if you haven't done that for a while to do it, it's just excellent. I'm re- I really, really enjoyed it. And I, I don't blow smoke. I, I, just being honest with you, I really like those tunes and, and the production and, and stuff. And I want to talk to you about those. So, Thank you. I, excellent. Just by the yeah. way, where are you located? In Vancouver. Oh, I'm really? Just outside of Vancouver in cool. Surrey. Yeah. All right. Cool. I'm from Ontario originally from Guelph. So I'm, I'm an Easterner, I guess, or Central Canada guy originally. But I've been out here for most of my life now. So I'm a West Coaster. Beautiful. Actually, Vancouver yeah. happens to be what I think is one of three of, of uh, North America's three most beautiful cities with San Francisco, or at least what Francisco, San Francisco used to be, and Quebec City. Yeah, no, gorgeous. No, absolutely. And so you're, you're a Montreal guy. You, were you born in Montreal or just outside of Montreal? No, I was born in Montreal, but I moved out to the Laurentians 15 years ago. So now I live in okay. Mont-Tremblant. There you go. But uh, so you, you came out of the music scene in Montreal, which was pretty vibrant in the 70s. I guess you grew up at a real special time. It was a special time, especially because of the fact that Quebec being French, we had a lot of influence from France, which was mm. thriving in the 70s. So our musical culture was a mix of whatever came from the US, Great Britain and France. And, oh, that, nice. and that made a big difference because uh, French the French people have a very specific way of writing music, just as the British do. Uh, hmm. So, uh, yeah, all of that was a, a great influence on them. Yeah, and so what was your musical background? Like, did you just decide to play, take lessons, or you just started playing keyboards and, and guitar and singing? What, what was that? So about? our dad, uh, I had three bro- brothers, and our dad forced us into piano lessons, classical things, since the age of four. Wow. And I, I have to admit, I hated it. I, I really despised it. I really hated it. And I, yeah. I, I was able to, uh, to get through, uh, what was it, about eight years of that horrible yeah. thing. And then I gave it up completely. I, I struck a deal with my dad to the effect that that was it for me because any further, he was just going to, you know, to, to lose me. Yeah. And yeah. then I spent, I'd say, the next four years uh, playing on my own and just playing Beatles songs and what have you. And then I realized that I could actually write my own songs. And that's when yeah. I stopped playing, oddly enough. Because, huh. yeah, because I find that when you write a song with an, an instrument in your hands, you have a tendency to repeat yourself by automatism. Your hands ten, tend to land at the same places all the time. And I mm. realized that it was a lot easier for me to just jump in the car, hit any highway, and drive around 100 kilometers per hour with the window just slightly open so that it produces a white noise, you know, a shh type yep, thing. Yep. And then you can hear everything very clearly in your head. And that's the way that I, um, my preferred way of writing music is always in the car. 
Isn't that interesting? Because you got the music, like, what is it, My, Miles Davis said years ago, I, I got music in my head, I just got to get it out. True, exactly. Yeah. It was the same thing. And by the way, yeah. my influences when I was a kid, oddly enough, included Miles Davis, but his early material, uh, yeah. things like uh, what he recorded in the 60s, Porgy and Bess, he made a, um, an instrument an instrumental version of that, which would be yeah. extraordinary. I used to listen to Gregorian chants, classical music, jazz, rock, progressive yeah. bands. Uh, very diverse. Yeah. yeah, very diverse. Yeah, right. No, very cool. That's one of the cool things about the 70s. I think we're, we're probably similar age. You might be a little bit older than I am. But uh, growing up at that time, the, the mix was so eclectic. We listened to just about everything. And then you got all these things in your head. And then you're trying to put that together in a way that makes sense for you to put your art forward. Yep. Uh, my musical diet, as I mentioned, included progressive rock. And that was a yeah. great influence when I started writing music for the box. A good example of that is the song L'Affaire du Moutier. Mm. English version is, is called Say to Me. It's a murder yeah. story, so it tells a story. And not only that, but it, it, it incorporates um, bits of exchanges between the various actors of the song as if you were listening to the soundtrack of the movie. Now, the right. idea, okay, it's a four-minute song. It's not an 18 or 20-minute song. It's a four-minute song that was designed to go on the radio, but at the same time, it was very heavily influenced by the progressive rockers of the 70s who told stories, you know? Yeah. So that's a good example of that. Yeah, and so your early bands, you know, before you formed the box, were they all over the map as well? Do, what kind of influence did you have for those bands? Well, I was only member of one single band before that, and it's Men Without Hats. I was key, oh, okay. Yeah, I was keyboard player for Men Without Hats, and yes. I did write a lot of music, but I didn't write any of the lyrics. Ivan took care of that, as he was yeah. the lead singer, and it's only understandable that the lead singer will want to write his own lyrics. Uh, mm -hmm. But that's it. I never had another band apart from that. But you're right. I mean, the musical diet here in Quebec, as I mentioned before, uh, was um, uh, very diversified because of the influence from the U.S. for one, England and France. We can't yeah. forget that because, of course, Quebec being French, we listened to a lot of stuff that came from there, which gave it a completely different dimension. Yeah, no, that's great. And And then so... I've, I interviewed Ivan, actually. I spoke with him and had a nice talk with him. He lives out on the West Coast here now. That's right. As well. Yeah, Victoria. Yeah. 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 So um, so what made you decide that you could actually make a career? I mean, everybody everybody and their dog had a band back then, right? Lots of kids played in, in bands. It was a cool thing to do. What, what was your sort of defining moment where you thought, you know, I, can, I might be able to do something here? Uh, it was one day when a friend of mine took me to the Montreal Forum to see Genesis. I did mm. not like to go see concerts, rock concerts. I did not like being in a crowd, and I went to see very, very few. But he brought, okay. he forced me, actually, to go and see that one. And when I sat there, and that was the, and then there were three tours. So there were only three remaining members of Genesis. And I remember being seated there, uh, watching these guys, and then listening to the audience between, you know, applauding between songs. And I thought, how is it that, so few people can create such an extraordinary response from so many. This is really mm -hmm. unbelievable. And I, I remember having decided right there and then that that was what I was going to do for a living. And mm -hmm. I told my friend coming out of there, I said, I'm going to be here with my own band headlining this place in 10 years. Mm -hmm. And we actually did it in nine yeah, no, that's very cool. It's it's magic, right? When you're there and that the atmosphere is created, that 
that magic happens. There's just something about it that you can't really describe. Yeah, right? And after, after that, everything was drawn out for me because as I mentioned, I was member of Men Without Hats. And when I left Men Without Hats to do the box, they yeah. were ready to hit the market with the safety dance, which became an international hit. But I had kept the same management. And so, okay. yeah, so when I was ready to come out, uh, uh, the, the men with our hats were actually all over the world. And that gr- gave a, a tremendous credibility to the management team who then transferred right. all of that to us. In other words, if it weren't for men without hats, uh, doors wouldn't have been kicked wide open the way they were for the box. And I'm always very grateful for that. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that because I was going to ask you, you know, like getting a record deal is not the easiest thing to do and you have to have some connections and of course you have to have the tunes and stuff. So I was going to ask you how you got that deal, but you had connections already that were in place. So you just had to come up with some product that, that they were going to be interested in. Exactly. And then you, you played with your brother. How was that? Uh, (laughs) uh, It was a lot of fun actually, because as kids, we couldn't uh, bear each other. He was a little bit yeah. older than me, and he was a, 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 a constant bully to me. Uh, yeah. And that is actually what brought us together. So uh, I'm very oh. thankful for that, too. And he wrote a lot of music, too. And although our tastes yeah. were very different, uh, it, it, there was a way to incorporate what he did with the box, and we have. Uh, for example, okay. a single that we wrote called My Dreams of You and released on the second album was one of his songs. Uh, okay. Yeah. I played with my brother for a few years, but I was the older brother, and I kind of had older brother syndrome is what i call it were you I, the bully <laughs> well i just you know you're you're the older brother you're intense you're pushy you're you're trying to do what you need to do to make what you need to make and and you just end up being a bit pushy and and just being that way and I, and you know i reflect on it later and go yeah you know so when people play with their brother i always ask them about that because you know ivan did too right uh yes but it was his younger brother and uh, yeah. ivan was the undisputed boss in men without Hearts. yeah 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 Fair enough. And, and, and that's fine. I mean, you have to have a leader and, and with you, I guess it would be your older brother. That's what happened with John Fogarty too, because his older brother was in the band, right? But he sort of took the lead. So there's always a dynamic there well, right, yeah. that I just wanted to ask. Especially from the fact that the band was already there when my brother joined. He joined a little okay. bit later uh, because yeah. I was playing keyboards with, uh, with, with the box before while singing. And he thought, you know what, forget about the being behind a counter like that all the time. Just go up there, take care of the people. I'll take care of the keyboards back here. And that's how it happened. Oh, good. Yeah. Because you end up like the ironing board, we call it, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you, you're standing there and you can't really express yourself the way that you might want to. So then you did the, the, the debut album was 1984. And uh, one thing that struck me about that is that the production is really good. Like usually when a band puts out a first album, it's, you know, the production's okay. They haven't got the the sort of polish yet and stuff. But with your, like, must I always remember and stuff, excellent. Like it's, the, the production is just great. I'm, I'm just, I'm the last person to whom uh, you can ask about this because I have so little uh, objectivity towards it all. Uh, that to me, I, I know that it sounded original. That's for sure. It didn't sound like anybody else. Now, was it because we didn't know what we were doing? Maybe there was a part of that. Um, I, I didn't know how to sing before that. I started singing with the box. And I suppose that although everybody says that my, the sound of my voice is special, I must add to that that when you don't know what you're doing while singing, you're forced to, uh, to sound different. I mean, because you're, you don't apply any rules. And that was clearly my case. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, it's funny you mentioned that because we were talking, somebody asked me the other day, do you ever watch The Voice? And I'm like, yeah, not really. You know, and, and, and I pointed out to them that, you know, people like that have personality in their voice, like a Tom Petty or a Neil Young, like they would do terrible on The Voice. Absolutely. They, they wouldn't Young. get past the first round. Yeah. Absolutely. Neil Young. Are you kidding me? I mean, there's a legend has it that when Neil Young per- participated in the, uh, what was it called? The, uh, the thing for uh, uh, people dying from hunger in, the, in Ethiopia. Oh, the We Are the World. The we Are the, the World. Apparently, yeah, he, yeah, has, he has a part in there where he sings along. Uh, and, and the sound, gen- sound engineer was constantly on his case to make him sound not sharp or flat. And he said, look, man, yeah. that's my style. <laughs> Forget about it. Yeah, and and all the hits song, but it's the personality, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, so so obviously you you because you have a distinct voice, you know. And like I said, I'm a fan of the box, and and closer together is one of my favorite songs. It's on my playlist. I play it all the time. So I, you know, and it it's just distinct, you know, which is which is what you want more than anything because colleges and universities are cranking out um, people with degrees in music and really really good singers every day. So. But, uh, so that debut album came out and then you did the, the video. So you had a record deal at that point. What was your, what was your record deal at that point in 84? Uh, it was the standard thing. Um, it was a record deal with, uh, alert music, which was a label formed specifically for us and Kim Mitchell oh. Uh, oh, interesting. By, by Mark Durand, who was the manager for men without hats and Tom yeah. and, uh, Tom Barry in Toronto who had been managing uh, rush. And so okay. they decided to get together and form this new label. And that's what put us on the map, really. It's the fact that these people didn't have uh, to render any accounts to anyone. They ran the label. They took the decisions that they took. And that's it. Um, yeah. And so, you know, contrary to the last deal we had, which was uh, with Capital EMI in Los Angeles, where no one wants to take a decision, uh, they all take decisions in groups because if one uh, doesn't do the right decision, then everybody's going to point the finger at someone in particular. So to avoid that, right. they take decisions as uh, seven, eight, nine people. And that's the best way to take no decision at all. And uh, Yeah, there you go. Uh, so yeah, You don't have to own it when you're not making the exactly. decision. Right? So if there is anyone out there that is uh, thinking about uh, being in the music business, just make sure you don't sign with a major label because you're just going to be one piece of whatever in their greater scheme of things that they will never lose sleep over you. Yeah. Yeah. Fair point. So this alert record. So I, the reason I ask you about that, because you, there, there must've been some money put into it. Like where you recorded the album, it was produced, who was the producer and where did you record it? Uh, the label was the producer. They advanced the money okay. because they didn't lack any money. Because as I mentioned before, at that point, Mark Durand was really rich because of men without hats. Okay. So yeah. the money came from there. And we recorded the album uh, in a place in old Montreal called Listen Audio where, in fact, yeah. Men Without Hats had, had recorded their first album, too. Okay. And it was uh, mixed there. Um, and then, you know, it was just a, a plain... But the real success of the band came through one particular lady who worked at Alert Records called Lisa Bitnew, which was later to become president of BMG, president of um, uh, Sony. And okay. uh, her... Uh, I mean, the telephone was an extension of her arm. And she went, she talked about Kim Mitchell and us and and further artists that they signed later, as if it was the the best thing on earth. I mean, uh, she was just yeah. talking about us relentlessly. She booked me interviews everywhere, 
when a label does the proper job on an artist, it's going to work. You expect it yeah. to work. You don't expect it to fail. And, uh, and that comes with a lot of arrogance on your part. But hey, I mean, if a record label picks you up, and spends fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars on you. Uh, they have something to lose, so they better do a good job of it. And uh, and you have to deliver. Yeah, and you also did a video, which they obviously would have put the money up for. So you did a concept video, like a sort of a theme, well, a thematic video, and that looks like it cost a few dollars too. Uh, yeah, but to me, it was a disaster. I didn't like that video at all. And then I told mm. the record company, from now on, I'm going to do the videos. If I ask, no. if we're going to throw twenty-five, $30,000 out the window, next time I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> yeah. And then I did the video for L'Affaire du Moutier, uh, Say to Me, and yeah. we had a gas doing that. It was just extraordinary. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was looking at your credits and you did get some director credits yeah. for some of those, yeah. right? Yeah. And, which is smart because, you know, you were right in the middle of the video time, like 85 84, 85, you had to have a video with the hit song oh, yeah. if you were going to get a hit we, song. We, we right? were born with the video industry. Yeah. And so, but then some of those videos, when you look back on them, you know, you make a good point because some of them, the concept videos and some of them were just odd. Like I talked to Alfie Zappacosta about his video and stuff and he, he's almost embarrassed. He, well, he was, he said he was embarrassed by it, the jello wrestling and all the stuff in there that these guys came in and they said, well, let's do this and do that. And the band's kind of going, eh, I don't know. It doesn't seem well. That's the reason why I decided to do them myself. And then we, what well, we would do yeah. is get together the entire band and brainstorm about an idea, and then we'd yeah. just go out and do it. And we would hire people to do the cameras and all that, of course, because we didn't know the yeah. first thing about that. But yeah, the entire scenario was completely set up. We knew exactly what we were going to do, and then I would take yeah. out, uh, go on 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 a uh, what do you call it um, to just figure out where and, and uh, what shots we're going to do and where and, and buy all the accessories and all that, that I would do myself. Yeah. And then yeah. uh, I would hire a, an editor and just edit the whole thing and bingo. Yeah, well, no, that's good. I'm glad to hear that because then you had at least a bit of creative control over what you were doing because there's lots of videos, as I said, that they brought in a crew and they had a manager and they had a director and I don't know what we were doing. We were herded around and they ended up with this video that I had no concept of what it was even going to be. Yeah. So, and then you did uh, Walk Away, like again, really, really clean production and, and cool guitar riff. And you got that distinct, one thing about the box that, that was really cool that every band wants is you had that really distinct sound. Like you, you sounded like you guys. I mean, you have that sort of, um, you, you didn't overload the sound. Like you didn't, you didn't fill every track up and try to fill every hole. Like it's very sparse in some spots, well, but it's, yeah. it's cool. We had a policy and that was to... Uh, just go and record whatever it is that we were able to play live. In other mm -hmm. words, we didn't do overdubs. If we could play a song, uh, just the five of us together, keyboards, guitars, bass, and vocals, uh, and just transpose that to the studio and record that and nothing else, maybe a little bit of doubling on the vocals, that sort of thing, a harmony or two, but not much more than that. And it's funny because we had a rehearsal space uh, with other bands rehearsing in, in different uh, rooms. And the other bands would come to us and say, man, you sound exactly like the record when you play live. And I said, yeah, well, we do it on purpose. Because if there's something I didn't like, uh, the, the few shows that I've seen uh, was to have this song clearly in my head from a band, whatever the band might be. And then you'd go see them live and it's completely different. Well, yeah. I didn't like that yeah. very much. So I, I made it a point to make sure that 
whenever we presented ourselves to the public, it would it would be with something as close as possible to to what we had recorded. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing that because I did notice that, and 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 it doesn't need to be filled up. It's everything there is is great, and as long as you got clean, good sounds, and the band's playing as a unit, because as you say, like a lot of those bands, those songs were studio creations yep. to a large extent. Absolutely, right? yeah. So they go in and they come out with something that that doesn't really reflect what the band actually sounds like. So you guys nailed that great. And again, the production with the the sparse sort of sounds and the production came across perfectly. I think it's just great. Thank you. So the French English debate, I have to ask you about that. Did you, did you go back and forth? And I mean, obviously if you're going to make, try to make it in the bigger market, you have to do English, but, but you had lots of French uh, music and you must've, you were influenced by that and grew up obviously speaking French and you must have played lots of French songs. How did you sort that out? Was there a discussion about that? No, there wasn't any discussion about it for, for again, uh, rooted in the men without hats experience. When, uh, when the hats hit the, hit the world with the safety dance, uh, the record company expected us to do the same thing. And it wasn't going to happen if we sang in any other language than English. So that was okay. out of the question. The other thing is, I've always spoken English. It's it's been part of my life. Although I have a big French accent when I speak, it's been part yeah. of my life uh, from when I was a kid. And so, if I didn't have it around, maybe it would have been a bit of a phony business for me to sing in English when I don't even speak it. Right. But yeah. and then my mom. Okay, my mom came to me one day and said, "Look, if you're uh, 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 stupid enough, <laughs> let's put it this way, if you're stupid enough to think you're going to earn a living uh, with music, you might as well put all the tools in your box, and and English is one of them. So yeah, go ahead and use yeah. it. The other thing right. is the only backlash we had because we were a bunch of francophones in that band. The only backlash mm-hmm. we had was from part of the press, not even all the press, just part of the press." especially people who were very much inclined with the, you know, with the sovereignist movement here in Quebec, and they mm-hmm. thought it was a threat to the culture and what have you. But the general public, especially out there in the province of Quebec, which is by, by, by a large margin, very sovereignist, they always accepted it as something that was uh, very nice to have. They knew that we were going to represent Quebec on the international scene. And uh, they were very proud of it. And uh, so, yeah, we had a little bit of backlash, but only from a portion of the media. That's it. Yeah. Okay. And and it's justifiable. I mean, the, the marketing people are going to, it's going to be a very short discussion, right? If you want to market to North America and Western Europe, Absolutely. you're going to have to sing in English. You know, English. Yeah. So, but um, what language do you think in? Both, actually. Okay. It depends on what mood I'm in. Uh, it depends on what it is I talk about. Um, uh, f- for example, English is a, a perfect language to get an idea out rapidly and precisely, okay? a feeling. Okay. Whereas French, if you want to go into very, very specific details, then French is a good language for that because it's much yeah. more complicated than English, much more difficult to. Um, and it's beautiful, right? It's got the beautiful sounds to it. It's, it's a more it's, beautiful language. It's, it's, I think it's pretty special, uh, especially yeah. the French that is spoken here in Quebec, because it's a mix of the attitude of the, of the North American U.S. kind of thing. I mean, it's as different from the French spoken in France as the English spoken in America is different from the ones sp- spoken in the U.K. You see what I mean? Right. The, okay. the, yeah. in, in the U.K., things have a sophisticated kind of sound 
to the accents, whereas in the U.S. it's more a streetwise, no-nonsense type of... Uh, well, it's the same with the right. French in Quebec. And so, yeah. But I do think in both languages, it's interesting that you ask me. It's the first time I've ever been asked that in an interview with the boss. Well, the reason the reason I asked that is because I used to teach English courses to people who had a degree from other countries. Oh, and they would say if you know if they grew up in Korea or whatever, they would say they would always think in their native language that they grew up with, and then they would translate it to English. Even after speaking English for many years, they would always think in their language that they grew up with. But you grew up with both. Yeah, I grew up with both, and not only that, but I grew up with Italian too. There you go. <laughs> uh, because of my dad, which is Italian, and we spent yep. uh, uh, longer periods of time when I was a kid between the ages of six and 17 in Italy. But I never yep. think in Italian. Never. Okay. There okay. you go. Even though that's very much part of my past, I never think in Italian. Always in English yep. and French. Okay. Well, cool. Oh, I'm glad. Thanks for sharing that. And then, so as far as the music goes, you guys were labeled New Wave. And then I thought to myself, but you had a hair and you had hair and the beard and stuff. You didn't have the, the weird cut hair and nope. the clean shaven and stuff. You didn't do the sort of makeover New Wave thing. No, right? not at all. Not only that, but I never thought that our music sounded New Wave. No, I, I didn't either. But I guess they got to label you somehow. But that seemed like an odd, like. I guess it has to do we, with the, just the timing, just the time that we came out. We came out with a bunch of new wave bands. We could say that Men Without Hats was a true new wave band before mm -hmm. they released a safety dance. If you listen to their first yeah. EP, uh, it's really electronics and it's, uh, you know, fake drums and that sort of thing. That was real new wave. But the box, I don't think so. So I agree with you totally. We were never a, a, a new wave band. I don't think so. But they're trying to slot you, I guess. They got to put you somewhere. So you're pop and rock. And, and I mean, closer together to me is just a cool rock slash pop song. Yeah. If anything, it borrows to the uh, uh, Detroit sound. Uh, what do you call it? The Motown sound more than anything mm. else. So, yeah. no, we didn't, I, I never identified as a new wave. And uh, not that I mind. There are new wave bands that I liked very much, Soft Cell, all of that. But yeah. uh, no, The Bucks was just an ordinary rock thing, uh, radio-oriented rock thing. Yeah, no, that's, well, fair enough. And, and yeah, that's the reason I thought that, because a lot of times the record companies, especially you know, the bigger ones would, would send the band in for a makeover. Or we're going to get you guys a photo shoot. You're going to go in and get a makeover. Everybody gets their hair cut. You get shaved. You get makeup put on. And you look different than you would normally look, right? Uh, yeah, and that didn't happen with me. They knew that yeah. if they tried that with me, they would end up with a disaster in their hands. <laughs> so, no, nobody never forced us to do anything of that sort. And that's because, like I said before, it was a small label. We had a very close relationship with Mark Duran and Tom Berry. And uh, yeah, they appreciated what we did for what it was. We could have sold, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, we could have sold a lot more records if we had played the game completely. Uh, mm -hmm. If we had had the, the big hair type of thing and the, 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 the crazy clothes and all that. Look at Lady Gaga. Yeah. You know, that's what yeah. she does. That's what show yeah. business is all about. So if, if we had done that, we would have sold a lot more records. But they were okay with the fact that it just wasn't us. And uh, it was, yeah. there wasn't any point in trying to get us to do things that we didn't want to do. Yeah. And I guess that's the rub. You know, I've asked a lot of people about that, but you're trying to stay true to what, you know, what brought you to the dance in the first place, as they say, yeah, right? Exactly. It's, it's the roots, it's the heart music, it's the, you know, once they start manufacturing it and they cut it and wrap it and freeze it, so to speak, it, it becomes something it wasn't before. And then you kind of lose the, I don't know, the magic, let's say. 
the originality for sure absolutely yeah. if you start copying yeah. and if you start applying a recipe it's the best way to look like everybody else i don't see what yeah. the point is yeah and then your second album came out in 85 and again the production's great so all the time all the time all the time mm -hmm. you mentioned the say to me sorry my french pronunciation is so poor i won't even try La Faire du uh, it's my favorite by uh, the way yeah it's my favorite oh, cool. ever i mean it's it's yeah. a once in a career song i've never been able to write a song as good as that one in uh since and uh and i'm very very proud of it and by the way that happened in less than 24 hours <laughs> i wow. don't know what i smoked yeah. back then but it's, it sure was doing the job well like like the old saying right you don't you don't know what the magic is till you find it then you go there that's it yep exactly yeah <laughs> so and then, uh, but uh, with all this cash, that's a cool song, fast groove and great vocals and cool guitar solo. So like, like again, about the new wave thing, you had some cool guitar parts in those songs. Uh -huh, true. Yeah. You know, the, and that was a, that was a cool one. And then, uh, my dreams of you, you did, uh, another concept video. Did you run that? Did you direct that one? Absolutely. I directed it and that okay. was a, 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 exactly the case. As I was mentioning earlier, we all sat down. I remember very well in my parents' dining room. Uh, the entire band, and we went, okay, that's, the song is about a guy meets girl. If we do a video, guy meets girl, it's going to be so sticky sweet, you know, so let's do exactly the opposite. Let's spoof mm. ourselves in it. And then and yeah. there, there we are as a bunch of uh, uh, homeless <laughs> guys in a, in a dark alley, and we try to seduce this mystery woman that comes out of nowhere, and we all the fail miserably. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. And the limo pulls up. Yeah, it's, it's cool. And then, so musically though, again, you, you, you bridge everything because it starts with that jangly acoustic guitar, but then you get the arpeggiated synth in there. Uh, that was only in the video because okay. the video, like I said, it portrays us as a bunch of homeless guys in the, uh, right. in, the in the back alley and one of us plays guitar. So in the video, I just added this kind of uh, uh, bluesy rhythm yeah. track just so that you could associate that with the guy playing the guitar in uh, oh very at, cool in, yeah but on on the record it was just a sequence starts right away and by the way yeah uh, the, those sequences were a kind of trademark for us so we used a lot of it in a lot of songs yeah no that sounds great and uh again so that was recorded at the same place that was recorded in montreal uh, nope, that one was Second recorded number. in the country. We decided to leave Montreal and be away from the bar scene and everything else. And we spent, uh, I believe it was three or four months straight um, oh. in a place called Saint-Tit, which is actually just potato farms everywhere. Hmm. And then we mixed it at Moronites, that famous studio in the Laurentians where the Rolling Stones okay. and, and everybody else have recorded. You remember that? Le Studio, it was called? I remember the name. I, of course, I've never been there, but... Uh, the studio. Yeah. Yeah. So we yeah. mixed it there. Yeah, very cool. And so were you overseeing the production? Did you have a producer? Uh, Mark Durand was the producer, uh, but okay. he was producer insofar as he had good ideas to put in, in inside the songs. Uh, for example, he would suggest, uh, let's say that we did, we added a folk guitar track to something because of whatever reason. So that, that was his kind of role, but he didn't touch mm. the knobs. So who happened okay. to be engineer uh, over there is the one who actually mixed everything. And, yeah. um, and then we would come in and approve or disapprove or whatever. But no, I never touched the buttons. I didn't know anything about that back then. 
Okay. Well, you had the right guys doing it because yep, as I say, I the production is consistent and good and you can listen to it 40 years later, 35, 40 years later, and it still sounds great. So that, that to me is the test of time, like the old super tramp stuff. And you can put on Steely Dan from the mid seventies and it still sounds great. And by the way, so. we also add our own sound engineer, both live and in the studio, who was a member of the band. Remember that guy right. who I said took me to see Genesis by force back when I was yep. 18? That's the guy. Oh, cool. So then 87 comes along and, and of course you put out Closer Together, which like I said, is one of my favorite songs. I mean, I, I just love it. And I just, excellent video and the band and the players and, and you put that out. So that was really, did that sort of launch you into a, a, another level? Yes, it did. Uh, and by the way, uh, just so you know, uh, Closer Together, the song was a commission. It was a commission by Lucan. Lucan is the Society to Fight Leukemia with the Young Children. It has a base in uh, St. Justin's Hospital here in Montreal. And one day the phone rang, and it's those guys who call me, and they say, we're putting a fundraiser together. It's going to be a video, and there's going to be the, it's going to feature the Montreal Canadians who had just won the Stanley Cup back in 86. They did, yeah. And they wanted us to do the music for that and to organize a, a, a hockey game at the Montreal Forum with the Canadians, well, not all of them, but a few of the members, sick kids from St. Justin, us, Martin Sinclair, who was a uh, proficient uh, female singer of the time. She's the one who sings in that song, by the way, not Sass Jordan. Okay. okay. And, um, and so, yeah, so we wrote the song. Again, This is, it was a 24-hour business type of thing. We wrote uh, oh. the entire thing in, in no time at all and sent it off to them. They were enchanted, especially with the beginning. You know, it goes, oh, in the beginning of that, they, they thought that was such a, yeah. a vocal hook. Uh, but yeah. then when the record company heard it, they said, well, that's going to be the first single on the third record. And since it was yeah. the middle of uh, the winter, uh, we didn't feel like it was right to uh, film this video in the snowbanks of Montreal or indoors for that matter. So we all flew down to the Dominican Republic and okay. we shot the video there. Yeah. Uh, I must add, Sash Jordan appears in that video because Martin Sinclair didn't want to be with 18 horny guys on a beach in Dominican <laughs> Republic. So she declined. <laughs> yeah, she declined the offer yeah. to come with us to shoot the video. Yeah. But Sass Jordan, being the trooper that she that she is, she said, yeah. "Absolutely, I'm coming." Yeah, she's a rock and roll girl. She she can handle that. Yeah, no and problem, she was right? she was a back <laughs> backup singer for us for six years. Oh wow, well, so, well, that's that's cool. Well, yeah, you're right though. It had to be a happy video, and then of course all the people in the street. It, it, that that video really suits that song absolutely. very well. Yeah, so, so in good, the sunshine. Good point, yeah, though. in the sunshine. Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. So that launched you, and then you did uh, Ordinary People, which, is that a direct aim at the U.S. market? I mean, you, it's a slick video, and you got the U.S. flag there, and yeah. you even, I think, play part of the anthem and part of it. Was that a social political commentary as well? Or? No, it was the contrary. Yeah. Uh, what was the it? song okay. says, it says clearly, we're, we're ordinary people. Now, the thing is, in that video, and that is really regrettable, but in the video, we had it, it says it's the song starts by saying in the USA and the USSR, right? Hmm. And we had two flags, the American flag and a giant Russian flag right beside it. But nobody okay. sees it because it's just red. I mean, it's boring as hell, that flag. Whereas the American flag is super rock and roll, you know, with the stripes and yeah. everything. So you yeah. can't really see the, the Russian flag. And what the song is about oh, okay. is that it says that whether you live in the USA or the USSR, 
or anywhere else for that matter, we, the people, okay, we would like it if you politicians would get along and stop threatening us with, uh, you know, the nuclear thing, because back yes. then it was a thing. Remember, yep. Kay, um, uh, I think it was Korean Airlines Flight 007 had been shot down uh, over the Sakhalin Islands by a Russian fighter. Uh, yep. Yuri Andropov was uh, the chief of Russia at that time, the former KGB chief, and tensions were high. Even Sting wrote a song called I Hope the Russians Love Their Children Too. Yes, okay? yeah, I remember it well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so it was a little bit of a scary time, you know, a little bit like today with what Putin's doing in Ukraine, but even worse. So that yeah. song was apolitical. It was the contrary of a political song. It said, it said, whoever we are, we'd like to live in peace. Ordinary, we are yeah. ordinary people. And so, yeah. yeah, but the thing is, it was interpreted wrongly by people who saw the video as a promotion of the U.S. way of life because of the American flag. Mm. But like I say, the American flag was just, it happened to be so overwhelmingly uh, visually uh, more, you know, just present than the Russian flag right beside that. Nobody saw right. that, that okay. the Russian flag was there. Yeah, to be honest, I, I didn't catch it either, but I did get the, I got the overall message of the song. And, 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 then, oh, and the, the guitar solo in the middle of the song is the few first notes of the American anthem followed yes, by sir. a few first notes of the Russian anthem. But the thing oh, okay. is, a lot of the people don't know what the Russian anthem is. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't catch that either. Yeah, well, good point. Go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for point. So the two things that struck me: one was the first. You know, some bands like to make political and social commentary in their songs, and you guys were were typically not like that. No, right? You just wanted to talk about life and and music. If we were going to talk about something uh, um, socially oriented, it would be uh, something that anyone can identify too and we will we will always stay away from politics by the way uh, the the uh, liberal party called us twice to have closer together as a theme song for the their campaign and the conservatives oh. once and we always yeah. we always said no because okay. we didn't want to alienate ourselves from half of our audience so we never yeah. associated with anyone whether it's on the right or the left or anything like that we were just there to make music and make you forget about your day-to-day -day life, not remind it to you all the time. Yeah, well, a good point, because uh, there are some musicians out there and some entertainers, and, you know, Roger Waters obviously is, is a quintessential example of that, but they, they're, they're very, very political. And the thing is, music is the great unifier. I want to go to a concert to forget about that stuff. I want to go to a concert to enjoy your music at whatever your politics is that's your business. I share but... your point of view 100% because when I was a kid, what I appreciated from uh, uh, bands from anywhere was the fact that they could just remove me from my day-to-day -day routine and make me escape and make me share this uh, incredible world in which they were. And so yeah. I thought I would do the same. But by the way, I have nothing against people who do politically oriented art. It's, it's absolutely the right. And even though they might be wrong or right about whatever it is, the issue they're defending, I don't care. It's their right, mm -hmm. and they, they, it's perfectly acceptable that people do that. It's just that we chose not to. That's it. Yeah. That's all. Well, fair enough. And and if if people are inclined that way, they would go to it. But, you know, Dolly Parton, for example, she just will not even entertain that conversation. Uh, I've, I've, seen, I've seen an interview of Dolly Parton uh, with, uh, uh, I don't, a, a lady called Waters. 
She was. She used to be a, a very well-known anchor at CBS or something like that. Anyway, well, Barbara, Wal- Barbara Walters. Exactly, Walters. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I've seen that video, and it, it dates back to seventies. And I hear yeah. this woman speaking, Dolly Parton, and trust me, yeah. she's not the dumbass that everybody thinks she is. Not at all. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. But she doesn't want to alienate anybody, so she doesn't get into that part of it. But the other thing that struck me about that, the the flip side of it was you were trying to make a foray into the U.S. market. I mean, obviously, you wrote Closer Together. That that should have been a number one hit in my mind in the U.S. Yes. And then so I, I thought with Ordinary People and then the American flag, you were trying to use that as a wedge into the U.S. Was that part of it? No, not at all. Uh, okay. It, it was it was our plan to the U.S. market, and b- b- for the life of us, we couldn't understand why it took so long to happen. It we needed yeah. the fourth album for that to happen. Uh, but no, we didn't do it on purpose. Uh, the, the American flag had nothing to do with us wanting to be in the uh, in the U.S. market. It was just there to cover the purpose of the song. And closer okay. together, I agree with you. It would have been a a tremendous hit anywhere, but we had to wait until the fourth album and a song called Temptation, which was which yeah. was not even a big hit here, but everywhere everywhere else in Europe, especially. Yeah, but no, that's a great song too. But uh, to my mind, closer together with the production, the song, the it, it's just such a feel good song that Absolutely. that should have charted on Billboard 100 for sure. Absolutely, I, mean, I no, agree. Yeah. yeah, but it didn't. Yeah. And so what's the reason for that? What, what would it have taken to get to crack that U.S. market the way you wanted to? It's a mystery to me to this day. I don't, okay. I can't explain it. I know that the, uh, the, our managers did what they could. One maybe explanation would be, maybe, that if they sold the band to a U.S. label, it would be under a license. Therefore, if that American label made a, a, a dollar, 50 cents out of every dollar they made would have to be returned back to Canada under a license mm. agreement. That's the only thing that I can think of that would have provided uh, these people an excuse to pass on us and, and pick up an American band. I mean, it's, not as yeah. if, it's not as if those are, are few and far between, right? So yeah. why sign a Canadian act with a Canadian label if every time we, we sell a record, we have to send half of it back to Canada? So that's the only right. thing I could think of. Uh, and, well, then, and, and and for the fourth yeah. record, the deal was different. But again, the mistake there is that we signed with a super huge label, capital EMI in, the, in, the, uh, in Los Angeles. But still, okay. uh, Temptation did great in Europe and, uh, and, and uh, that, that's good. Yeah. But again, if you have a distribution deal from a Canadian label, you get no promotion down there. And of course, the independent uh, music promoters have to be greased yeah, in exactly. order to get anything, yeah. right? That's also a reason. You, yeah. There's the mechanics yeah. of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then you got to write, somebody has to write some big checks and then you, they have to say, well, these are my boys here. These are, these guys are going to go somewhere in the U S yeah. if you don't have that person, then a good song, unfortunately, isn't enough, as as many people have learned over the years. Absolutely. And don't forget but, that the band yeah. ends up paying for everything. All of yes. these expenses are recoupable on sales. So yeah, you yeah. have to sell a damn ton of records before you can recoup everything and then start making money. So, yeah. it's, it's the- So, but what struck me, like you, you got the U.S. deal, you went to L.A., right? You, you recorded, and it was Pleasure and Pain in 1990, I guess that was. That's right. In England. Yeah. So where did you record that? In England. Okay. Genetic Sound Studios with uh, Martin Russian. Martin Russian was the producer for the Human League. Okay. And he had just won a Grammy for his participation in the writing of, uh, and the producing of uh, Don't You Want Me Baby. 
Okay. And so Great he had song. a big name. So he was part of the picture. He knew a lot of people at Capitol Records in Los Angeles, and uh, that yeah. helped a lot. So you went to LA, and then they sent you to England to record? No, the contrary. Oh, okay. It was because we had recorded there with Martin Russian that the the our guys here in in uh, in Toronto and Montreal were able to get us a deal with uh, uh, Los Angeles. Oh, okay. So so your Canadian label set up the recording in in England. Okay, I got you. But see, carry on. I mean, that's fantastic. It's a great song, great um, production. It's Just funny. It's excellent. funny. It's funny you say that because I used to hate that song, and although it was a big hit too. And I used to hate it, and I we didn't even include it in our uh, in our uh, set when we started the band back to, in two thousand five. And mm-hmm. it's because the people in Halifax, whom we had played for, we they were super disappointed we didn't play it, and they made me promise to include it in yeah. the uh, in the set the next time we came. And I thought, oh, yeah, cool. right. I mean, it's going to be a while before we're back here, so forget about. It. And then <laughs> we were booked to get back there three weeks later. Uh, so I had to include it in the thing. And the thing yeah. is, you know what happened? I just started loving it because it's so much fun to play live. It's a lot of fun to play live. And, and I started liking it. And now it's been part of the show ever since. And it's actually oh, the second, the second show, um, song we do in the set, in the first set. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad to hear that because the hook, I mean, those hooks are few and far between that, that are that strong. And then, of course... So again, you know, you're right there. You, you, it's an absolutely great song. The vocal intro is super cool. The production's great. You did a super cool video. And I like the video because it's more real. It's the, only one, it in house. it's the only one I yeah. didn't do. Huh, interesting. We, we but hired, it comes across really good. Yeah, yeah, it does. And it, it, it's actually a, a, um, uh, a reflection on what we had been doing in England. Hmm. Because uh, in England, we were at Genetic Sound, which is uh, a, um, a prototype studio run by Martin Russian. And there was a big house right next to it, but that dated about 500 years with attached roof, that sort of thing. You know what I mean? No. Yeah. And we stayed in that house. So every day we would just step out of the house, cross the driving uh, strip, enter the studio, spend all day there, and then back at at the house. And that lasted for four months. And we had a great time in England. I mean, uh, the English people are absolutely extraordinary. They, They don't want to have anything to do with you for the first few days but once you've established yourself as you know being there for a reason and you start socializing with them they will give you the moon i mean it they're really incredible people so we had a great time there and the video very cool the video portrays that yeah so then and then you did temptation too which is a cool looking video and that looks like it costs some money and i love the bass playing yes oh yes that one cost a lot of money (laughs) And you're right, Martin Russian did an incredible job on Jean-Pierre's bass. I mean, I don't know how he did it because I couldn't be there when, when they recorded that because I was in the house writing lyrics. But anyway, yeah. uh, I agree. Really it's, it's fantastic, the bass sound. And then Excellent. we, I decided to do that video myself again, and we shot it in uh, New Orleans in Louisiana. Yeah, well, that's what I wondered. There, there was some money spent on that because of all the scenes and the different locations yeah. and stuff. Right? And not only that, but I had an accident. I fell off a pickup truck that was moving. There is a scene oh. there where, where you see all of us in a pickup truck. And I was in the back yeah. and I was holding a very expensive device, a uh, video device in my hands. And I didn't want to let it go. And the truck hit a little bit of a bump. And I fell off. Instead of leaving oh, that thing geez. and grabbing a, grabbing a hold of something, I just kept it in my hand. So I fell off the truck and broke my collarbone oh. at two spot, in oh. two spots. So I was Jeez. rushed to the hospital 
And then they declared that my lungs weren't, were not punctured and I could get back on set, but we had to do an extra day of set of, um, of shooting. Oh. And it doubled the price of the video. I think it cost them like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, Jeez, yeah, yeah, yeah. that'll leave a scar. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny because I looked at the video and I thought, well, that's this looks expensive. It was. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so now, so now we get to that. Okay, you got your fourth album. You got great songs. You got closer together. Carry on, temptation. It's the MTV time. It's much music. I mean, you guys are there as far as I'm concerned. So what was the problem? Like, why, why, why didn't you, did you get MTV play? Did you get any play in the States? Okay. So here's the reason, uh, the band was, first of all, the band was about to die from exhaustion. We had been together mm -hmm. for 12 years because even though the first album was only released in 83, I believe not 84, uh, we had been together since 81. And okay. we were close to exhaustion. And then Capital EMI in Los Angeles did a really stupid mistake. They, uh, it, like you say, it was a CD period, and all the labels did that. They took their catalogs of any artists they had, and they put it all in a, a CD set. Now, mm. as you know, Capital EMI owns the Beatles. And yeah. when they did that with the Beatles, they, they, they brought their entire work piece of work into one uh, uh, box of CDs, which they labeled The Cube. And they okay. released it the same week as they released The Box. Hmm. Very stupid mistake. First of all, yeah, you don't that's... compete with The Beatles. I don't care if you're the Rolling Stones or Pink Floyd or whatever, you don't compete with The Beatles. A. Yeah. B. You don't go putting two, two products on the market at the same, the same week that have such close names. The Cube, The Box, come on. And yeah. so it failed in the U.S. And that mistake cost me half of the band. Half of the band yeah. were really in a, in, in a frame of mind where if labels continued to screw that way, they were going to just get out and get a real life. And that's exactly yeah. what happened. I lost three members of the band right there and then. Then, yeah. after that, Temptation was a success in Europe, but the band had already lost half of its members. And mm. it was difficult for us to get together to try and do a tour of Europe. So that never happened, although yeah. the success of the band there was more than uh, obvious. It's, it's, it remained, Temptation remained for 13 weeks, number one on the Italian uh, national yeah. charts. And not only that, yeah. but it was a great hit in a territory called Gast for Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and Turkey. And if you wonder what Turkey has anything to do with it, it's because of the diaspora in Germany. Whenever the Germans put out something on the market, they always include Turkey in their uh, marketing plan because of the German dias uh, the Turkish diaspora mm -hmm. in Germany. Oh. And wow. so there you had it. Uh, finally, yep. we had an international hit, but half of the band was missing. And you never did a European tour? Nope. We played France a couple of times, but for uh, per, um, marketing reasons. Hmm. And uh, no, it never happened. Yeah. So th that's what gets me, you know, like some of the Canadian bands, that's their, their knock on the Canadian bands is they couldn't make it into the U.S. And, and you know, there's a reason for that. Some of the Canadian bands, the production wasn't that great. The songs weren't that great. They, some of the bands were kind of mediocre, to be honest. You guys were not in that category. Th those songs were absolutely on par with anything that was being played production-wise, songwriting-wise, talent-wise. And then I watched that video of uh, around 1984, you're Pat Prescott, you're at this uh, New York and they're listening to walk away and great summer fair. Yep. Evaluating. Well. Yeah. Evaluating how you would do in the U S uh -huh. and saying you'd do fine. Uh -huh. Absolutely. What was that all about? 
Um, that was a documentary that was shot by uh, an, a guy named Jacques Godbout, which happens to be one mm. of the grand, one of the grandfathers of the uh, uh, in, uh, uh, cultural revolution of Quebec back in the sixties and fifties. Okay, and yeah. it was about the the, the, uh, the artistic trends in Quebec in the early eighties. And of course, the box was you know one of his targets. Uh, not said in a pejorative way, but he, you know, he was very much interested in what the hell was happening with this man of francophones yeah. who sing in English and who are set to make it big. And so he took the songs to New York City and he had them played to this uh, uh, DJ to ask her her opinion about what it would do. And the yes. lady is there and saying, yeah, that would work. Absolutely. It's about a working day, an ordinary people working day and uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, but then again, the reason why it, it took so long for us to get a U.S. deal, it's it's always a little bit of a mystery to me, other than what I explained earlier. Yeah, yeah. So the record deals for you, did you feel like you got mistreated or taken advantage of in, in any way? And, um, I, I have to say no. Uh, yeah. We are owed a lot of money uh, from um, uh, publishing and author's rights in Europe. Okay. And... Uh, I don't think it's worth for us trying to get it because uh, capital EMI in London, which is the international, they have lawyers and they will cost you in lawyers fees what it is you could gain if you yes. if you actually gained anything. So it's not and drag worth it, it out for that's yeah. right. And it's so it's not worth it. And secondly, uh, our record company, our label Alert Records treated us very fairly always. And they really did their best uh, to um, uh, to accommodate the band and to make sure we went somewhere. So I'll always be grateful to them. And those are the people that count. The other guy okay. there in London sitting be behind a desk uh, at Capital EMI, I don't give a, 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 a hoot about this guy. He, he's yeah. not in my life. So I'm not at all sour about anything. Yeah, fair enough. I, I guess, you know, you realize once you get in with the big boys there, you, you are nothing. You're a meat puppet to them, right? Oh, yeah, it's absolutely. Just, you know, what have you done for me lately? What can you do for me? Otherwise, I mean, Henry Small talked about that being in L.A., and he went to the Capitol building every day. And then when they got dropped, they wouldn't even let him in the front door. There you and go. He was friends with those people. He was friendly with them and considered them friends, but they wouldn't even let him in the front door. So, you know, it kind of shows you where it's, a, it's a, I guess, a life lesson is what I would say. Yeah. And I repeat what I said earlier. If, if you have anyone in the audience who plans to make a career in this business, don't go with the big, ultra big labels. You're, you're it does it, you know, yeah. they won't yeah. lose sleep over you. So then you're, so you, you talked about the arc of the band, how you started in 1981. It's it, I've heard that story quite a few times in the interviews that I've done, right? You start out, you're, you, you got bright eyes, you know, you're, you're doing your music, you're following your passion, you're, you're trying to get somewhere and then you get somewhere and then it seems to be this arc. And then you get to a point where you, they're riding you like a rented mule, right? You're just exhausted. They want another album. They want more songs. They want promotions. And this arc sort of, ends and and when you look back like 10 years 11 years in the in the context of your whole life doesn't seem like that long it went by pretty quick and how do you how do you look at that looking back now you described it exactly how how it happened to us exactly um how do i look at it first of all the fact that we separated or at least that we broke up in 1990 was a blessing in disguise for a very okay. simple reason i just had had two kids two daughters which my wife and I pur purposefully 
had very close to one another so that, in, I mean, in time, there is uh, not even a year and a half difference between them. Mm, and nice. we wanted them to grow together. So that no. the, the failure of the band in 1993, because that's when the rest of the band, the, the three remaining members, decided to call it quits too, after we had written the fifth record. More about mm. this later, maybe. So I ended up being at home where I started the business to do jingles and that sort of stuff. I built a studio in my own house. Nice. And uh, I saw my kids grow. And I was there when they went to school. And I was there when they came back from school. And I could spend time with them. And I was, uh, you know, I was just there from 1993 to 2004. And okay. that, what, that was the most important role of my life. It was yeah. to be the father that I should be to my kids. Forget the band, forget everything. Secondly, in 2004, when we decided to reform the band because we had relentless pressure from the industry to reform and tour, mm -hmm. I went to see the guys in the, the, the first lineup. They would have nothing to do with it. Oh. But I had had projects with other guys, um, you know, on the side, which had nothing to do with the box. And we were having a lot of fun. They were friends. They were musicians that I had met over the, the decade there, uh, yeah. the late, late 90s. And when I proposed to them to form the box, they said, yeah, absolutely, we'd love to do that. And so yeah, we cool. reformed in 2004, started playing again in 2005, and it's been the exact same lineup ever since. So it's going to be oh, 18 nice. years now. 18 yeah. years since this lineup has been together. And I can tell you, we are friends. We don't uh, squabble. Uh, we don't give ourselves a hard time when we go on tour. And we had a three-date, um, uh, a trio just last weekend, which went absolutely fantastic. Great. And, uh, so, and, and, and we do it because we want to do it, not because we have to. Although we have released a record in 2005, 2009, and 2018, we don't yeah. care because it doesn't work the way it used to back then. The sales right. are just yeah. not there. But if people yeah. ask us to go and play, absolutely, why not? We're doing it for fun. Oh, that's great. And and so the when you went back to the original band, was there animosity there? Or are they just not interested? They got different lives now. No, we had remained friends too. Okay. But yeah, they good. just thought that uh, the music business was definitely not for them anymore. Yeah. Uh, some of them, all of them, in fact, have moved on to very lucrative businesses. One was okay. in the construction good. Uh, my brother uh, uh, went to work for, for the federal government and uh, so on. And so, nice. you know, they had lives of their own and, and yep. they started having kids too. Uh, me yes, and the drummers, me and the drummer, we were the two first ones to have kids after that, yep. uh, you know. And so family life and being on the road all the time, that doesn't work. Yes, for sure. And then you released some compilations in 2003 and 2007. Is that correct? That, that's correct. Like but it was, more of yep. a, it was more of a record company move. Okay. So did you, did you get uh, royalties from that? Do you have the rights yes, to do. do that? Or? Yes, yeah, we do. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah. Good. Okay, nice. Because uh, sometimes uh, people are selling records and getting zero. No, like there's there's deals out there like that. So I'm glad to hear that you're that you were part of that process at least. Yes, the record company is treating us uh, fairly in in so far as these compilations and the other stuff too. So yeah, yeah no good. problem. Yeah, yeah, good. And I'm glad to hear that you're playing and you're you're going out there. And so, what would you if looking back on the on the 12 year run, I guess that you had, what would you do differently if you could do it again? Is there something that you would 
you know, you were right there, yeah, right? especially we, with well, the U.S. market. Yes, we would do some. One thing we would do differently is to um, is to sign directly with the U.S. label, a U, a small U.S. label. Okay, that's the only thing, because yeah. Canada is great, but it's got thirty million, whereas mm-hmm. it is the second largest country on earth, whereas the yeah. U.S. is uh, three hundred and thirty million. So you got a yeah. huge market right there. But like I said, if 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 you sell your your product under license to the Americans, they they don't really have an incentive to work on it. Yeah, but no, if, that's right. But if you're there with an American label and a small-ish American label, such as I'd say, uh, 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 there's no name that pops to my mind right now, but yeah. you know, you assign with people who care for you and who will lose sleep over you. Yes. Yeah. No, that's right. That's what my manager always used to say. You want somebody who's going to get up every morning and say, okay, what are we doing with the box today? Where are we, you know, and then you need that, right? Unless you, unless you have that, you just can't get to where you need to be. And then you, you kept recording, right? The John of Mark stuff. I listened to some of that and, uh, well, that was the fifth album that I mentioned earlier. We actually wrote it, uh, the, uh, the three remaining members, the bass player, the guitar player, and myself. And since it couldn't be labeled the box uh, when we uh, decided to put it out, because I had the, the guitar player and, and, and bass player left, uh, they decided to call it quits just as we were going to release that record. So okay. they suggested to me, why don't you just release it under your solo project, uh, no. which I kind of did, uh, and that kind of didn't work <laughs> right you know? yeah but it's a great well, album well, i love it it's a super cool yeah. uh, super cool record but that speaks to the marketing part of it too right you work your butt off to try to get a brand and then you mention the word the box and you you hear the first two notes of closer together and everybody knows exactly who you are yeah. that 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 takes a long time to build that and then when you start to rebuild that again lots of guys have gone on and done solo projects and not done near as well just partly because of that. Yeah. Well, you have to start from scratch. Yeah. Like who's this guy or what's this? And then, uh, so you did a, you released some albums in French too, right? You redid your first album in, entirely in French. Is that right? Uh, nope. We did something completely different in 2009. Uh, see, okay. I was raised, uh, educated in a French lycée. A lycée is, um, is the kind of French system, uh, that, uh, that took place back in the seventies in France. It's, we call it okay. the classical course. It's very, very French-oriented, uh, literature-oriented, and it's very strict. Uh, okay. My, my dad sent us all three guys to that school uh, because he wanted to make sure that we had a correct uh, uh, knowledge of French, the French language. Okay. Uh, and part of that was uh, the studying of an author called Guy de Maupassant, who is the French equivalent of Edgar Allan Poe. Okay. The guy became popular for a series of short stories, just, uh, just like Poe did. And one of them is called the Horla. It's a sci-fi horror thing that he wrote back in 1887, 1887. Mm. And it's absolutely fantastic. If you, if you made a movie about that thing today in, in, with the CGI stuff and all of that, it would be great. It had, and it had a social co- comment, which I very much appreciated too. And I thought, yeah. okay, my musical diet from, from the seventies was, progressive bands and i always wanted to do a fully progressive album so i decided that that story was the perfect vehicle for that but i was going to do it in french and in french from that period okay so the style of french that i use is exactly his i didn't try to modernize it at all yeah cool 
And it's uh, it's a pretty good record. It that yeah. one went around the planet, but on the internet, right? And that would be a, a pretty genre specific kind Absolutely. of recording. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. That's why we decided to go on the internet for it. We knew very well that no radio say, stations would play any of it, so yeah. we decided to focus on internet sites that specialize in progressive rock bands, and it just was spectacular. We had yeah. no reviews lower than four stars. Oh, good. Very cool. I like to brag yeah, about no. that. Well, hey, I wanted to ask you about it too, because you know, I, I appreciate the uh, the work, and I appreciate the catalog and the different things that you've done. That speaks well of you too, because you know it's easy to just go away or just not do anything and and just, just stay involved. And then and then again, you know, we talked earlier about the eclectic sort of nature of your of your upbringing and the musical influences and stuff and you get to express that later on in life is fun right? yeah exactly that's exactly what happened yeah yeah no that's cool and then so when you were touring back in the day you did lots of uh, headlining shows but did you do opening like you toured lots right yes. back in the 80s yes and so what are the biggest tours you were on and, and who did you meet uh the biggest tour we did as an opening act was coast to coast from halifax to vancouver with chris de Berg. Oh, nice. That was at the very beginning of the band. It must have been in 83, I think. No, no, yeah. no. L'Affaire du Moutier was written, so it must have been 85. Okay, look, okay. it was his Lady in Red tour. Yeah. Lady in Red. So that'll cool. situate you as far as timing. And then we played... Well, that would have been a good tour, right? I mean, he oh, yeah. would have, you would have related to him a lot. Uh, we did, although yeah. not personally, because he traveled with his wife and a young child, and he was yeah. never there. The only okay. time that he was there was when we played, I believe, somewhere in New Brunswick, St. John, where his wife needed to remain in Toronto. And that's the only time of the entire tour where he could go out at night and have a drink with us. Wow. Yeah, that's the only time. Yeah. Other than that, yeah, I could completely uh, uh, related to this. Uh, you know, the, the, here, here was an artist who based his career on progressive rock. And then he has this yeah. song, Lady in Red, which couldn't be more commercial. And he hits it super big, planet wide. I mean, that was a good yeah. example of that. Uh, yeah. Then we played with the Pretenders and uh, other people. I don't remember exactly. Yeah. Well, that's a, I guess you know, like like um, the beginning of uh, Tale of Two Cities. It's the best of times and the worst of times, I guess, in in some ways, right? What you mean now? Well, I mean back then because you're you're touring and you're working and you're exhausted but you're you're taking a ride it's right? very yeah it's uh, you need to be young to be able to do that i'm i'm mm. serious if you're 23 yeah. fine if you're 35 forget it yeah because it's very uncomfortable you're never home you're always in a hotel room and let's face it you're not a millionaire so you're not traveling by with a private jet okay yes there and you so, go and so <laughs> and and you have to deal with whatever conditions are are there and it's not always easy. And then again, Canada, very, very large country, very few people. So you need to yes. travel very long distances between one city and another. It's not like you're yeah. touring France or Italy. Right. So, yeah. yeah, it's very, it takes a toll. It really does. And how much touring did you do in the States? Uh, not much. No. We did California. We did California in 1990 and uh, upper New York. And that's about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause some bands just go down there and try to make their way or they move down there and then just start working around down there. But if you're, if you're an unknown band or you don't have the MTV or the radio play, then you're just basically 
Correct. Going from small venue to small venue or opening for somebody else and not making any money. Correct. Uh, California yeah. was a special case because uh, Capital EMI decided to test the product there. And mm. they, they, they were able to get carry on to play on 90 different radio stations throughout the, the, the state. So that worked. Yep. Uh, okay. And then Upper yep. New York and uh, Buffalo and these places, Michigan, all of that was be- because of CFNY in Toronto, because they broadcast right. so, so widely across the lake that a lot of the people who live in these northern states could actually get an idea of all the music uh, that CFNY was playing. Well, good. Well, it's, it sounds like you're at a good place in life. You know, you're doing some painting too, I see. I, yeah, I know. I mean, w- when we moved out here in mont I thought that the general atmosphere was conducive to painting. I had no. already painted uh, sometimes in my life, but very bad stuff, which ended up in the garbage, in the garbage really quickly. Uh, but then, as with anything else, if you do it often enough, you get better and better. And eventually, I was picked up by a group of artists here who, who decided to make a collective. And we set yeah. up a gallery in one of the old train stations that dates back 1902, I believe, 1902. Yeah. And we, so we have that gallery. I was there uh, uh, yesterday uh, to keep shop. And today Very it's nice. someone else and tomorrow it's some, somebody else. And so, yeah, I, I do that. Uh, I live perfectly happy with my wife of 36 years now. Very, very and nice. my, my, my daughters are grown up and uh, they're having their life. I, I mean, I couldn't ask for better. I, I said in yeah. a song we wrote lately, I'm the luckiest dog on earth. Luckiest dog yeah. on earth. That's me. You know, I'm really happy to hear that because in the rock and roll business and the music business, that, that's almost an exception, not True. the rule. You True. Know? Absolutely. And, and, uh, yep. To be at this place in life and, and painting too. I'm always, I'm always, I always admire painters. It seems to be a natural progression for some. I don't have any talent that way myself, but for uh, artists, it's another way to express yourself. True. And it's the exact same mental process as writing a song is. It's exactly the same. Yeah. And the pitfalls are the same too. Hmm. Uh, Overworking something. That's one of the biggest ones. (laughs) Uh, Not knowing what you're going to paint about. That's another one. Uh, You know, it's, it's, it's exactly the same thing. Yeah, good. So you got so what's in the future then? You're going to do some more live dates. You're doing a little bit more recording. You got some painting going on. Well, oddly enough, the touring gets better and better. Uh, it seems okay. like if you you know if you if you hit the same nail on the head for 18 years, yeah. so it's it's getting better and better. So we get more and more gigs. Although I don't want to have any more because I don't want to get back to this uh, 1980s uh, pattern where we're always on the road. That doesn't interest me at all. Right. So yeah. if it can keep going like that for another 10 years, I'll be okay. I'm 65 now. Yep. Uh, I suffer from absolutely nothing. Um, Good for you. you know, I can go on stage and, and, and have fun all night long. You should see one of our shows. It's, it's full of energy. It's I'd, really, it's, I'd love it, to. It happens. Yeah. And, yeah. and the painting, well, what can I say? I paint when I want. I don't have to. I don't want to get into the circuit of galleries and be told by somebody, oh, I need to have paintings by next week because yeah. blah, blah, blah. I don't want that. Yeah, right. So, yeah. yeah, all I have to do is just enjoy and, and keep in shape. And, uh, and apparently the band will do that for you. Yes. And, and you can paint till you're 99 years old. So. Exactly. Yeah. Many thanks to Jean-Marc for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his life in the music business. More information is available at theboxband.com. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. We also invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear music from the Canadian artists you're hearing on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan Hare.